Israel's rebellious first king, and things have not gone well, if you're familiar with the story. Twice, Saul has defied God, and both times, the Lord has spoken of another man, a man after God's own heart, who would replace Saul. Here in chapter 16, we finally meet that other man. So let's pick it up in verse 1 and listen to how it all unfolds. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse and said, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. 
Let's pray now and ask the Spirit to help us as we consider the words of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge before You that we are a sinful people and You are a holy God. And were it not for You providing a way that we might know You, we would have no hope in this world. Father, we acknowledge this. We confess this. And even as we confess our need, God, we rejoice in Your provision that You have spoken to us in Your Son, that You have spoken to us in Your Word, and You have revealed Yourself to be the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us now, God, to hear Your words. Help us to hear the truth that You have given in this chapter. Help us to have ears of faith, Father, that we might hear and believe and grow in lives that honor You. I pray for Your help, God, that I would be kept from error, that I would speak the things that are true, and that You would give Your people discernment now. We ask this, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. Amen. Well, friends, in our trek through 1 Samuel, we finally come to the life of David. And what a life it is. David is one of the most beloved characters in all of Scripture, and understandably so. David's life is the stuff of which songs are written. David's exploits, while certainly true and historical, are legendary in their scope. Here is the shepherd boy who traded his staff for Israel's crown. Here is the courageous warrior who charged lions and slayed giants all through faith in God. Here is Israel's sweet psalmist who composed an entire hymn book for the people of God. And here is the complex king who is unfathomably wise on the one hand, and yet still tragically flawed on the other. From beginning to end, David's life is truly remarkable. And the story of his life begins here in 1 Samuel 16. And yet, for such a remarkable life, David's story begins in an unexpected way. I'm afraid our familiarity with David can work against us here. This chapter is an unexpected beginning. For one, who would expect to find a king out keeping sheep? Kings live in palaces, and their sons are raised in the finest of halls. But nothing about David's life in this text fits that picture. It's unexpected. But there's more. Perhaps what's most unexpected in 1 Samuel 16 is how little of a role David plays. Maybe you noticed it as we read. David never even speaks in this passage. His name is not even mentioned until verse 13. And then, when David does act, it's consistently at the command and urging of others. That's not to say David is unimportant, not in the least. But it is to say that we should read this chapter more closely. And when we do, we find that David's rise is remarkable not because of anything about David, but because it so clearly pictures the work of a sovereign God. Friends, that's the impact of this passage. Think of this first scene in David's life like a spotlight. And where is the beam shining? On God, who sovereignly orchestrates events to reveal David as king. You see, when we slow down to actually listen to the text, it's strikingly clear. 
It was God who sent Samuel to Jesse. It was God who directed the attention away from the older brothers. It was God who sent the Spirit on David. And it was God who brought David into Saul's service. That's who should get our attention in this passage, friends. 1 Samuel 16 is about our sovereign God who refuses to leave His people to themselves. That's the theme. As we look now to the actual events of the chapter, I'd like to draw your attention to four truths connected to God's work. If the passage is about God, then let's consider His work in this chapter. Four truths. The first is found in verses 1-5 to where we see the hope in God's provision. The hope in God's provision. As the chapter begins, we find the prophet Samuel in a state of mourning. And we can understand why. Think about what God's people have done and where that's gotten them. They rejected God as their king. They demanded a king like the nations. And now the king they demanded for themselves has been cast away because of his disobedience. If you were Samuel, you would mourn too. You've devoted so much of your ministry to guiding Saul and to leading these people. But look where things are right now. In shambles, or so it seems. But that's what makes the beginning of this chapter so powerful and ultimately hopeful. In the shambles of a failed kingship, God is present. And He is working. In fact, this entire opening scene is intended to stress God's initiative. We see it throughout. It begins in verse 1 as the Lord intervenes. I know it's small, but what's the first thing that happens in the chapter? God speaks. God speaks to Samuel again. Don't miss that, friends. Even though the people have strayed and Saul has failed, God is not finished with them. He still has a purpose for His wayward people. Look what he says. He asks Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now the Lord is not angry with Saul. The prophet's grief was both right and understandable. We should grieve over sin and its consequences. So God's not upset with His prophet. Instead, the Lord intervenes to show Samuel that his grief is not the end of the story. Next, the Lord directs. Notice how specific God's instructions are in verse 1. The prophet is to take his anointing horn and go to a specific man, Jesse, in a specific town, Bethlehem. This is sovereign providence, friends. This is sovereign providence. God is orchestrating human lives and human history to accomplish His purposes. You see, there's no doubt in God's plan. He knows where His man is and He directs Samuel on how to find him. Still, God's not done. The Lord also provides. Notice the last phrase of verse 1. This is arguably the most significant phrase in the entire chapter. I would make the case. Why is God sending Samuel to Jesse's house? Because the Lord has provided for Himself a king among Jesse's sons. This is mercy, friends. Nothing but mercy. Consider how different this is from Saul's selection as king. How did Saul come to the throne? Through the people's initiative, when they demanded a king like the nations. But how will this new king come to the throne? By God's initiative as the Lord provides for Himself. 
There's one last feature. The Lord protects. God takes the initiative and the Lord protects. Samuel raises an objection in verse 2. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And, and surely Samuel is right. If you know David's later life, then you also know Saul doesn't hesitate to eliminate people he doesn't like. So Samuel is surely right in his concern. But the Lord's not deterred. Notice the end of verse 2. God tells Samuel to take a heifer with him. If Saul gets wind of Samuel's trip, then the prophet can say he's come to offer sacrifices. And the plan works. Notice verse 4. Samuel arrives safely in Bethlehem. We shouldn't breeze over that. It's God working here. Samuel arrives safely, and after assuring the town's elders he does not bring a word of judgment, Samuel invites Jesse, he consecrates his sons, and they get ready for the sacrifice. Now, some folks get upset at this point and suggest the Lord is being deceptive with His plan. But that conclusion is too quick and misreads the situation. While God does conceal part of His plan, what He tells Samuel to say is absolutely true. Samuel does offer the sacrifice. So there's no lie at this point. There's no deception. Further, we must remember the Lord is not obligated to reveal His will to Saul or to anyone else for that matter. And that includes you and me. So the Lord does nothing wrong. And to be preoccupied with that question is to miss the point of the passage. Instead of debating God's purposes, we should see this as the Lord protecting His servant as He carries out God's will. Friends, do you see the divine initiative in these verses? It's all through the scene. The Lord intervenes, He directs, He provides, and He protects. This is all His doing. And that should give hope to His people. Just think about it for a moment. When everything is unraveling in Israel, what do we find God doing? Sovereignly bringing about a new beginning. He's not worried. He's not pacing around in His heavenly throne room fretting over what's going to happen next. No, the Lord is working. And regardless of the situation, He is able to provide His people what they need. You know, I can't help but think how timely of a truth this is for us today. It's common in our day to hear people talk about the collapse of culture and how we live in a post-Christian world. It's common for people to talk about how much of a train wreck life seems to be. And while there's certainly cause for concern in our day, I pray we don't make the mistake of thinking things are out of control. I pray we don't give in to hopelessness. Hopelessness breeds cynicism, and cynicism leads to unfaithfulness. Brothers and sisters, every nation on earth could fall, and our hope wouldn't move an inch. And if you don't believe that, friends, then you've misunderstood the gospel. Every nation on earth could fall, and our hope wouldn't move an inch. Our king conquered death. Death. He's not worried over the loss of a republic. He conquered death and He reigns now from an unshakable throne. We, of all people, should be persistently hopeful. Not because we're wise enough to figure things out. Not because we're pie in the sky, naive about how things are going. 
but because our Lord is always at work. That's the takeaway of these first five verses. God is always working. There are no shambles in God's kingdom. None. Even in turmoil, God provides a way. And that should make us hopeful and therefore faithful. So it's the hope in God's provision. As the passage continues, we see in verse 6 that Samuel has arrived in Bethlehem, which means it's time for God to reveal His chosen king. Remember, the Lord has already said the king will be among Jesse's sons, so naturally the process starts with the oldest son. Who else would it be but the oldest? But once again, we encounter the unexpected, and it's here we find our second truth, the wisdom in God's refusal. The wisdom in God's refusal. The key to this point is the exchange in verses 6 and 7 between Samuel and the Lord. Such a crucial moment. Notice carefully what happens. When Eliab is brought before Samuel, the prophet is certain this is the new king. And we can understand why. Eliab is the oldest, and verse 7 indicates he is tall which probably means he is imposing or impressive. In other words, Eliab looks like a king. He passes the eye test. Here's a man who could wear a crown. But then comes the unexpected. Notice verse 7. The Lord refuses Samuel's first impression. Do not look on appearances or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's surprising, isn't it? Samuel gets caught in the same trap that snared Israel with Saul. He's only looking at the outside. He's forgotten that leadership in God's kingdom is measured by a different standard. God looks on the heart. And why is God's standard so different? Why does God look on the heart? Because it's the heart that determines the course of life. Friends, we see it all across The Scriptures, it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and the mind thinks and the hands act. It's the heart that reveals our allegiance to God or to the things of this world. And therefore, God's not concerned with outward appearances. It's not that outward appearances are wrong, it's just that they don't matter in God's economy. What matters in God's kingdom is the heart. Because it's from the heart that life flows. Friends, there's a warning for us in this moment that we need to hear. Like Samuel in verse 6, we have a natural tendency to be impressed with appearances. And I'm afraid this is no less true in the church than it is in the world. It may be more true in the church than it is in the world. I don't intend to sound harsh at this point, but I do want us to take this seriously. How often do we equate numbers with God's blessing? How quickly do we assign significance to things that are polished or well-marketed? How easily do we minimize the faithful brother, the faithful sister, in favor of a person who can draw a crowd? You see, we crave outward status because we assume it signifies importance. 
We long for prestige because we think, we think it gives us a seat at the table. And all the while, we lose sight of what actually matters in the kingdom of God. Godliness. Loving one another. Caring for the least of these. Obedience to God's commands. Faithfulness to God's Word. Perseverance in the faith. Listen, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a large platform. It's good to want to reach more people with the truth. And I'm not saying it's wrong for a church to be large. I regularly pray for the Lord to increase the reach of our ministry. And I hope you pray that too. Those things are not wrong in and of themselves. The problem comes when we make such things the standard by which we make decisions and evaluate our actions. God doesn't look on outward appearances. That's not how His kingdom works. Growth in godliness, humility, love for others, faithfulness, obedience, those are the things that God counts as significant. And you can't judge them on the outside. So let's prioritize those things, friends. More than that, let's pursue those things ourselves. For it's those, it's those inner qualities of the heart that make for significance in the kingdom of God. Before we keep going, I can't help but be struck by how necessary God's wisdom is for the life of His people. Left to ourselves, we would certainly make a mess of things, wouldn't we? I mean, we see it here in verses 6 and 7. This is nearly Saul all over again. Did you, did you catch that? It's Eliab's height that grabs Samuel's attention. Just like Saul's height was his noteworthy feature. If Samuel had made the decision, then Israel would be right back where they started with a king who looked the part but lacked the heart to lead. In his wisdom, God told Samuel no. What a helpful reminder this is, friends. Sometimes God tells us no in order to protect us from ourselves. We're busy chasing outward appearances and God so kindly refuses to give us what we're chasing because He knows better than we do what we actually need in that moment. That was true for Samuel here in verse 7 and how often it's true for us. Only God's wisdom is sufficient to guide His people. Only God's wisdom is sufficient for His church. And that's true even when His wisdom means that He tells us no. We keep going and we find that the Lord's refusal of Eliab was only the beginning of the rejection. Notice verses 8 and 10, 8 to 10. Jesse parades the rest of his sons before Samuel, but each time the Lord says, Nope, I have not chosen this one. It seems they've reached an impasse. God sent Samuel to Jesse, but none of Jesse's sons appear to be chosen. Verse 11, however, changes. The situation, and it's here we see our third truth the encouragement in God's choice. The encouragement in God's choice. By the time we get to verse 11, there's only one question left for Samuel to ask Are, are all your sons here? Are we missing one? You can understand the prophet's confusion. He knows the Lord sent him to this man in this town, and yet there's still no king, and they seem to have run out of sons. It must be that Jesse has another son. And indeed, that is the case. There is another son. But 
before we rush on to meet Him in verse 12, we have to linger here to see how unlikely a candidate this son is. This last son is essentially forgotten. All the other sons were invited to the sacrifice, but this last son is overlooked. What's more, the boy is the youngest, which makes him an unlikely choice for such an important office. And maybe most telling of all, Jesse seems almost dismissive when he mentions the boy. Notice what he says in verse 11. There remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Don't let the formal language confuse you. This is Jesse saying, yeah, I have another son, but don't worry about him. He's so little, we just send him out with the old sheep. Don't worry about him. You see, everything about this son seems to rule him out. And that's precisely the point. The Lord looks on the heart, remember? The fact that this shepherd boy doesn't look like a king has no bearing on God's purposes. It doesn't matter what he looks like, is God's point. Notice Samuel's urgency. Again, verse 11. Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Nobody gets to eat until the shepherd boy arrives. And when he does arrive, the Lord's choice is clear. Verse 12. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. You see, there's no doubt. There's there's no doubt. God has turned the expected upside down to reveal his king. Understand, friends, this is a pivotal moment in the history of redemption. God's choice of David both looks back and looks forward. It looks back to the beginning of the book when God chose a barren woman to bring renewed life to His people. You remember those opening chapters, don't you? Hannah was the least likely person to give birth to a son. And yet, what did God do? He chose the least likely. And through barren Hannah, the Lord gave birth to the new leadership His people so desperately needed. And now the choice of David points us back and says, see what our God has done? See how our Lord works? He chooses the weak and the lifeless and the unlikely to do His will. That's who He's after. But God's choice of David also points us forward all the way to another unlikely son born in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus didn't look like a king. He came from humble beginnings. And his own family questioned him and overlooked him. Sounds like David, doesn't it? You see, that's the connection here. God's work in choosing David prepares us to understand God's work in the Gospel. These are God's ways, friends. These are His ways. This is how His kingdom works. Barren Hannah leads us to unlikely David. And David leads us all the way to an unexpected but glorious cross where Christ is crowned as our King. And now that work has continued on to us. This is our encouragement, brothers and sisters. Before the Gospel invaded our hearts, who were we? Consider what we were. None of us were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of us were powerful or important or mighty. None of us were born into royalty. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. 
And his choice of unlikely David should lead us to marvel at his wisdom that confounds the ways of this world. We have nothing to commend ourselves before the world. We have no power in ourselves to stand against the darkness and the wickedness that now opposes us. And yet from age to age, the church endures. The church remains. Surely this is the wisdom and power of God and nothing else. Our very life as the church is a testimony to a sovereign God who delights to use the least likely for the glory of His name. You see, this is our story. It's about more than just David. These are God's ways. This is how His kingdom works. The Lord's choice of David should open our eyes again to see the wisdom of God in confounding the ways of the world. And in that wisdom, we should take great encouragement. For that's what we are. Unlikely. Weak. Frail. Deserving of nothing. This is our encouragement. Hmm. So, we come to the last portion of the chapter. And here we find the first of many contrasts between David and Saul. If chapter 16 is the turning point of the book, then verses 13 and 14 are the hinge of the entire storyline. God establishes a clear difference between David and Saul. And it's here we see our final truth. The purpose in God's distinction. The purpose in God's distinction. The key here is the activity of the Spirit, and the distinction is striking. Notice it with me. In verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. Friends, this is the language of equipping or empowering. That's the significance here. Not only does God graciously choose David to be king, but God also graciously equips David with what he needs to serve as king. This is true all across the ages. God always equips where he calls. He equips where he calls. He equips David with the Spirit. But then notice what this means for Saul's life. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Friends, this is a sign of Saul's rejection as king. He's no longer God's anointed, so he no longer has God's empowering spirit. Now remember, please, this is about equipping, not salvation. Verse 14 is not teaching that Saul somehow lost salvation if he were regenerate in the first place. These verses are about equipping, not salvation. I'm going to say it a third time. Equipping, not salvation. God keeps all who are His. Amen? Saul's no longer the king, so he no longer receives the Spirit's equipping for the office. I know that everybody wants to ask the question, was Saul a believer? Is Saul in heaven? That's not the question the text is concerned to answer. But if we are going to answer it, we have to answer it from the totality of his life, not verse 14. Alright? These are about equipping, not salvation. Now, if that's all that happened here, then we would be getting closer to some understanding. At least I hope we would. But the Lord makes another distinction that demands our attention. He sends a harmful spirit to torment Saul. It's not clear what this spirit actually is. Some suggest 
Maybe demonic oppression. Others think more of a spirit of distress or mental turmoil. It's not entirely clear. But what is clear is this is further judgment against Saul for his rebellion. It's further judgment against Saul for his rebellion. Remember, you have to read chapter 16 in light of chapter 15. What did Saul do in 15? He purposefully defied God. He clearly turned his back on God and said, I'm going to go my own way. I don't want you. Well, sin has disastrous consequences. And that's true across the ages as well. And one of the consequences in Saul's life is this this moment here. He's tormented by a harmful spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised the spirit comes from God. People who are surprised that the Spirit comes from God are reading more with modern eyes than biblical eyes. Remember, the Bible consistently teaches that God controls the entire universe, including the unseen spiritual realm. So if a harmful spirit is going to afflict Saul, then of course it comes from the Lord. To quote one theologian, who else would send it? And yet, even as we affirm God's sovereignty over all things, we must also equally affirm that the Lord does nothing wrong. God is never the author of evil or sin. God is never the author of evil, though He does use secondary means to accomplish His will. Remember, He used the Babylonians and the Assyrians to punish Israel, though the Babylonians and the Assyrians were wicked. But God did nothing wrong. Similar here, God raises up this harmful spirit and in His sovereignty, He determines that the spirit will torment Saul. But still, we're faced with the question of why. Why does God do this? Well, that's where David comes in. Notice what happens beginning in verse 15 and then on through the end of the chapter. Saul's servants propose a plan to bring Saul relief. They suggest finding someone to play music to soothe Saul's distress. And through divine providence, the person they find is David, the newly anointed king of Israel. In fact, notice the twist in verse 19. It's Saul, the rejected king, who sends for David, the anointed king. Such is the Lord's providence and wisdom, friends. God uses the tormented, rejected king to elevate and highlight His anointed and chosen king. And it's through David's ministry that Saul finds relief from his affliction. Friends, that's the entire reason for the episode with this harmful spirit. It's intended to highlight David as God's chosen king who brings blessing to others. God's blessing flows through David. Saul's sin has brought him to this point, but even still, God mercifully grants Saul some comfort through the ministry of his anointed. Of course, this will not always be the case. Soon, Saul will turn on David and try to kill him repeatedly. But for now, David is a means of comfort to the very man he will replace. There is, however, one final insight in this last scene that I want us to notice, and we'll close with this. We said at the outset that this chapter was like a spotlight with the beam shining on the work of our sovereign God. And that remains as true at the end of the chapter as it was at the beginning. Notice the description of David in verse 18. He was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. 
That's a remarkable list of characteristics to be found in such a young man. But notice the last feature. And the Lord was with him. You see, it's the Lord's presence that makes the difference. Friends, this is always the reason God's people have hope. It's not that we raise ourselves up to attain His kingdom. It's that He comes down and makes Himself known among us. In fact, if you look back through the Old Testament, time and time again, you'll find this same phrase, the Lord was with him. You'll find this same phrase used in connection with God's servants. The Lord was with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, with Moses, with Joshua, with Gideon, with Samuel, and now the Lord is with David. But brothers and sisters, this truth is even more wonderful when we remember the proclamation of the Gospel that has now come to us. As the New Testament opens, what is the good news specifically that the Apostle Matthew declares to us in chapter 1 of his Gospel? What is Matthew's good news? That the Lord Jesus... Emmanuel Himself is now with us. You see? Friends, this has always been the hope of God's people. That the sovereign, gracious God would come again to be with us. And now, in Christ, David's greater Son, that promise has come to us who believe. The Lord is with us, brothers and sisters. And therefore, we have hope. Amen? Let's pray.